Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. How are you all doing this evening? Why don't you stand up and we'll begin in prayer. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Please have a seat. In our Eastern tradition, that is the way the deacon begins and ends prayers, and so that's why it sounds a little different to you. As you know, tomorrow, or actually today, since the evening has already begun, it is the great and holy feast of Pentecost and the commemoration of the sending of the Holy Spirit. The feast of Pentecost, you know, is not originally a Christian feast day. Is it? No, it's a Jewish feast day of harvest. And it was that reason that so many people were gathered in Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem is a very small city, very small. At the time of Christ, even smaller than it is today. You can walk around the city walls, or at least I can walk around the city walls, in about two hours or an hour and a half. You can just literally just walk across the city back and forth, back and forth, back and forth all day long. The feast would have attracted thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews. All the men that could possibly make the journey were called to Jerusalem three times a year, and this is one of the feast days that they were called to come to Jerusalem for. The place would have been absolutely jam-packed. And it was in that context on Mount Sion, at the upper mount of Jerusalem, the highest point, that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and those gathered with them, upon the mother of God and the closest friends of Jesus. And they received the gift of the Holy Spirit and they stood up in the midst of those crowds with the city jammed full of people. And they preached for the first time the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the text tells us that the people were cut to the heart at what the apostles said. Not because the fishermen were eloquent, or the taxmen were eloquent speakers, but they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that gift, they proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people converted in one day. 3,000 people converted in one day because they were willing to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They could have said no. They could have hid in the upper room, but they followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit and they stood up and proclaimed courageously the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they saw happen at their hands what they could only have dreamed of when Jesus Christ said, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They went with faith. And they were willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And I ask you tonight, how many of you asked somebody to come with you tonight to the Institute of Catholic Culture? And how many of you asked somebody to come to church with you tomorrow? If we have a problem in the Catholic Church, it is because we refuse to be the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus Christ on earth. He will not do it without us because He loves us too much. He loves us too much to do it without us. But when we say, yes, Lord, I will do it. I will stand up in the middle of the city and proclaim you resurrected from the dead. I will do it in the marketplace. I will do it in my job. I will do it in my family. Come what may. Then, my friends, the Catholic Church will grow and Christianity will become the dominant religion upon the world. It will be converting people. And Islam will stop growing. And people will come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they will be saved instead of being damned and going to hell. But it is because of our hands. God places this gift in our hands, but we must be willing to do it. I suggest you go home and read Acts chapter 2 and meditate upon that for tomorrow with that gift of the Holy Spirit which we as a church receive. We have received on the day of our chrismation, upon the day of our confirmation, and we receive it again today. To say, yes, Lord, I will go out and preach the truth of our faith unashamed. And then we will begin to see the working of the Holy Spirit at our hands. Please welcome back our wonderful speaker tonight, Professor Eric Janislawski. Thank you, Deacon. Thank you for having me back. And if this were, I guess, a more convert-filled audience, people would have been saying amen at the end of that uh, <laughs> exhortation. So if you're joining us midstream, and this is part two of a two-part talk, I just wanted to pick up where we left off last time and remind everybody, if you have not really gone over Galatians, part of my suggestion last time was that Romans and Galatians, because they both treat of the topic of justification by faith, as their predominant theme, are useful to read together. And if the last spate of handouts that I made for you uh, was not enough, uh, Melanie said to me, six pages! So I made a bigger handout this time, which tried to pull together, as proof of that, a lot of texts, parallel texts, texts that reinforce each other, texts that help to clarify each other from Romans and Galatians as we go through Romans and look at how we have a Catholic understanding of justification by faith to be found there. So step one, if you haven't done it, is to go and check out Galatians. And if it's useful to you, I have two lectures that I was privileged to give here at the Institute on Galatians that are available online and in the archive and on CD. So if you're catching up, that might help. And also, the last two handouts that I prepared, go through some key terms and go through some of the senses of these terms, these important terms like justification and saved as they occur in Romans and in Galatians. So I'm going to be presuming that because I don't want to recap because we have only an hour here this evening. And I wanted to get right into part of the chief job of tonight, which is to demonstrate that if we understand the epistle to the Romans correctly, we see there our Catholic theology of justification by, as the Council of Trent said, quoting St. Paul, faith working through love. An understanding of how we are justified that involves, yes, faith, but faith that is living faith, faith that is expressing itself through works. And with these together, faith and works, 
we are justified before God. And ultimately, if we persist in that state until the day of our judgment, we will be saved. We talked about justification and salvation or what it means to be saved last time. That is contrary to the Lutheran understanding of this letter and of Galatians, which asserts that, according to Luther's famous modification of Romans 3.28, that we are justified by faith alone, apart from works. Now, just to be clear, what's meant there is for the Lutherans, faith is understood there primarily as the intellectual adherence, the trust in God and the adherence to the truths that he has revealed in the gospel. And that, for the Lutheran, is the essential thing that justifies and that ultimately saves. And that anything a man does of a moral value would be classified as a work. And works, according to the Lutheran reading, are entirely separate from what is essential for justification. They may follow, and that's all well and good, but works, according to the Lutheran reading of St. Paul, are in no way essential to justification. Whether a man does good works or not is entirely apart from the matter of whether he is justified. Now, how Luther arrived at that, we'll see if we have some time at the end of the day. Maybe we'll get into that. But I wanted to start to show you how this is not a proper reading of Romans based on the groundwork we laid last time. And so if you have the uh, massive handout that I prepared for you, I hope it's not too big. On the second page, I started to do that. On the first page, I gave you a brief one-page reprise of some important arguments from Galatians because they pop up in Romans and he develops them a little bit more in Galatians. So maybe if, if we're to start with the first page first, I suppose, just to refresh you if you haven't had a chance to look at Galatians, in that letter, Paul makes two arguments, classic rabbinical style. We talked about this briefly last time, one from the law, one from the prophets, about how justification cannot consist in keeping the works of the law of Moses. The other thing for people that are joining us, if you haven't had a chance to look at the first part, it's essential to remember the context of these letters in which they were written. It's Paul's controversy with the Judaizers, with those people who opposed the introduction of Gentiles into the earliest church by the manner in which St. Peter had introduced them and the manner in which St. Paul was introducing them, namely by preaching to them the gospel, by receiving their faith, their repentance, by administering to them baptism, and that's it. Most of the church, remember, at Paul's time was Jewish in origin. And um, some groups of Jewish Christians that are called variously the Judaizers or the Circumcision Party, uh, sometimes they're identified as Pharisee Christians, became increasingly disconcerted by this manner of evangelizing the Gentiles. And so they were the occasion of the calling of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And their position was, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so against that, Paul argued both before the council and after, since heresies don't go away, even after councils condemn them, Paul has to, on a few occasions, counter the Judaizers and their argument that keeping the law of Moses and receiving circumcision was essential to justification. So it's important to remember the big picture context because I think it's very easy to take some of Paul's references to what he means by works, in particular the phrase works of the law, out of context if one does not remember that. And so on the first page I just reprised Paul's arguments against the Judaizers from Galatians. He likes to point to Abraham. We talked about that last time 
how Abraham, it gives us a proof text in Genesis 15, 6, was said to be righteous by means of his faith. He believed, he trusted in God's promises, and this was uh, his justification. Genesis 15, 6. And this is important for Paul because this is two chapters. This is uh, two chapters, Genesis 15 before Genesis 17, and 14 years before circumcision was ever commanded of Abraham, the first person whom God commanded to be circumcised. And then the second argument Paul gave that we also looked at in more detail last time was the argument from the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4. This text cited in Galatians and in Romans and in Hebrews, looking at the grim prospects of the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the first temple, the hauling off of the people into a pagan land, and the inability to carry out most of the ritual precepts that the law of Moses had enjoined on the Israelites, Habakkuk is disconcerted and says to the Lord, what will happen to us? The, the wicked, yes, they'll be punished by this, but what about those who still seek the Lord and who still want to be good? And Habakkuk is told in, in 2.4, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous one shall live by his faith. And thus Paul argues both before circumcision and the law of Moses were given and after in Abraham and in Habakkuk we see that God has provided a means for people to be justified by means of their faith apart from the works of the law of Moses. And so uh, he will return to this, and I think that's important because sometimes when we look at Romans 3 and 4, uh, there will be references to faith apart from the works or works of the law. And what Paul is speaking to here is precisely this controversy with the Judaizers. Their next question, the Pharisee Christians to whom Paul has to write, uh, would be then, what's the purpose of the law? We've been keeping it diligently for centuries now, and it's no easy task. So if the law doesn't save, if the law of Moses does not justify, why then did God give it? And Paul gives three reasons in Galatians 3 for the law. And in each of those cases, we see that the law has a positive and necessary purpose but it's a preparatory purpose. It does not do the same work as faith. It does not achieve the same end as faith. It sets up for faith, but it does not sort of do half of the work that faith does and faith does the other half, but rather there's sort of a preparation to fulfillment relationship between law and gospel. And Paul describes that using three images. He says in Galatians 3.19 that the law was first added because of transgressions. And if you want to, I promised... Sabatina, turn with me, if you will, to the letter to the Galatians. If you want to read this section of Paul's argument, Galatians is four letters back from Acts. we got the four Gospels, then we have Acts, and then the letters of St. Paul. And Galatians 3.19 gives one explanation for why then did God give the law. It was added because of transgressions. That's the same reason why anybody gives a law. Uh, why do people make laws? In part because people are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and therefore, one makes a law against it to identify that behavior as bad and to condemn it, and then maybe further to punish it. But the identification of behaviors as bad is not the same thing as the forgiving of those sins that have been committed, right? One is necessary. You have to know that something is bad before you might repent of it. But just the identification of the sin and the condemnation of it is not the atonement for the sins committed. There's a relationship between the two, but they are not the same. 
The law serves a purpose with respect to what is offered in Christ, but it does not do the same work as what is offered in Christ. And so Paul will first describe the law as coming in to identify transgression. The law condemns sin so that the good news of Jesus Christ might reveal to us the means whereby we might have the atonement for our sins. So that's rationale one for why then the law. Rationale two, just a couple verses on, and this is a bigger development in Romans than it is in Galatians. In Galatians, it's almost cryptic. Galatians 3.22, Paul says just very briefly, the scripture consigned all things to sin that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And that's a rather radical statement, that the scripture consigned all things to sin. In fact, that might sound a little bit dour, pessimistic. And part of what Paul is trying to do with this expression in Galatians 3.22 is something he develops in greater length in Romans 3, which is to show us how part of the deeper purpose of the law, beyond just identifying this transgression or that misbehavior, is to drive home to Israel the fundamental realization that as fallen human beings, we are in a position of unrighteousness that we made for ourselves, but we cannot unmake by our own power. Uh, there's the, maybe you remember the old commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, that's part of the essential condition of being a human being in the condition of sin. By the misuse of our freedom, we can become debtors. We can become, this is why Jesus loves parables like the man that has the enormous debt that he cannot repay, or people that have given themselves over into uh, something that is hard to undo, like the wickedness of of prostitution, or someone who is uh, the man possessed by a legion of demons. These individual ways that Christ touches people's lives and the parables that he uses often seize on the powerlessness of someone who is in a state of sin to unmake the condition that he has gotten himself into. And so much of what the prophets had to do for Israel is to remind them that God loves them and God gave them means to express their contrition, but that these were being misused. How often? It starts in Samuel and it goes to Amos and it goes to Hosea and you see it in the Psalms that the Jews would sometimes say, oh, I've sinned against the Lord, but here's my sin offering, I'm good. A little bit like uh, getting into a little debt on your credit card and then you pay it off. Uh, The tendency of Israel to self-righteousness, to think that by its own power, it can return itself to a state of right standing before God, was something the prophets had to battle against perennially. And that's part of what Paul sees as the job of the law, is to teach Israel not just to avoid individual transgressions, but to ultimately come to a recognition of what it means to be a fallen and a sinful man, and to need, therefore, God's grace to make us in right standing before God. Remember we talked about last time, For how many were here at the first part? Okay, good. So it's not going to be a complete shot in the dark. We talked about justification. Do you remember that? About being just, uh, being upright, being righteous in a state of one's proper conduct with respect to the covenant relationship one has with someone. And then if one is not keeping the law in the way that one should be, if one is not meeting one's covenant expectations, that isn't a condition of unrighteousness or you are going from a state of uh, being dikaios upright to adikia, wickedness or condemnation or injustice. And so part of what we have to recognize as human beings after Adam is that each of us uh, finds himself in the condition of original and personal sin. 
and that uh, is something that is a alienation between us and God, and we desire to get back to a state of righteousness, of right standing before God. That's the purpose of justification, being made just once again, returning to a state of right standing. And so part of the purpose of the law, consigning all things to sin, or as Paul writes in Romans 3, at greater length, if you turn with me to Romans, the first of the Pauline letters, right after Acts, Paul develops this logic in a little bit greater detail. Romans 3, 9. I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have gone wrong, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you look in the footnotes to your Bible, you'll see that's a string of Old Testament citations. And then Paul continues, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's a second and deeper purpose springing from the first purpose of the law. The first purpose of the law is to identify and condemn individual misbehaviors, transgressions, but the second sort of more global purpose of the law is to drive home to Israel the reality that it is in the condition of sin and needs God's grace in order to return to a condition of righteousness. The law brings you to your knees so that the gospel might lift you up again. Or St. Augustine has a fun reading on this in Galatians. He says, one only earnestly desires the physician once he tells you how sick you are. (laughs) And so that's the law's job. The law is the physician in the negative sense. Here's the bad news. But that sets up for Christ, the divine physician in the positive sense, to now reveal to you the medicine of grace and the hope for immortality that comes through the fruit of his cross. And so that's a second purpose for the law, and that's important to keep in mind because Paul will talk about the condemning power of the law and how the law is uh, designed to show us that we cannot do anything that justifies by our own power. His thrust there is, of course, that one cannot do this without grace, and that is what is offered to us in Jesus Christ. The third purpose of the law receives a little bit less development in Romans, but it's there in Galatians as a big theme, to serve as Israel's chaperone. Custodian, the Greek is paedagogos. This is a keeper of children. Uh, We think pedagogy and we think education these days, but this is more of a disciplinarian, someone who made sure that Junior stayed away from the ruffians, spent his time doing good things around the house and attending to his studies and obeying the precepts of mom and dad, kept them away from bad influences, and so too the law of Moses had a certain isolating effect. It separated Israel from the other nations and allowed it in its formative period to be free from contamination from the Gentile mores that they nonetheless sought out and sometimes had to be punished for adopting. How often do the Israelites go after the gods of the Canaanites and fall back into the idolatry that they inherit from surrounding peoples? But the purpose of the law also is to 
chaperone Israel so that it might be trained in what God has revealed only to it as a nation. And that in the fullness of time, just as the adolescent comes to maturity, so too, as Isaiah promised, that Israel would be a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So just as every parent wants his child to be free from malicious and disorienting influences while they're growing up, not to keep them in a bubble their entire life, but ultimately so that they might be good, well-grounded adults, able to interact with even wicked people in the world with a sense of probity and moral conscience and right conduct that's been interiorized, so too the law set Israel apart in order to train it in righteousness so that when the fullness of time came with Christ, it might go out to carry out the Great Commission to go therefore and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that's Paul's big picture of what righteousness is, how the keeping of the works of the law of Moses is not essential to righteous, Abraham, Habakkuk, and what the law does in all cases, positively related to the coming of the gospel, but by no means does the same work. Does that make sense? Okay. If that's, if that's clear, then we're going to have easy sailing. Now, to get into the meat of how we're going to interpret Romans, turn with me now to the second page of the big handout. I wanted to start reviewing texts in Romans that show us that justification by faith, which is something we all assent to as Catholics, we can all quite happily say we are justified by faith, is something which in our understanding involves a life of doing good things, good works, with the assistance of God's grace, and that this position can indeed be found in Paul. We started with this a little bit last time with the thing that begins and ends the epistle. Its opening and closing statements focus on what Paul calls the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. If you want to take a look at Romans with me, we'll be kind of going through at least the first couple of chapters closely. Right even in the very salutation, Paul speaks of himself and his ministry, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations. And this obedience of faith, I mentioned last time, is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. To go, therefore, and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But what is obedience save for something that we do? Obedience is an action, right? One is called to obey, one is called to do something. So, too, at the end of the letter, Paul repeats the theme of the obedience of faith in his final salutation to the Roman audience. Now, a little bit more clearly when we get into Romans 2. Last time we looked at Romans 1 and the introduction of sort of the concept of natural law in Romans 1.20. But then at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells us about how obedience and indeed good works are necessary to be justified on the day of judgment. So take a look at Romans 2.5. Paul writes to those that are being hypocritical and failing to keep the very things that they preach. Paul writes, But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will render to every man according to his works." To those who by patience and well-doing, says my RSV, and I wonder just uh, in terms of 
different translations that are out there. I gave you in the handout uh, the Greek, kathupomenen ergu agathu. Uh, or I looked it up in the Vulgate, secundum patientium bone operis. Literally, uh, patience is what we usually get here in the RSV. It can mean long-suffering or perseverance is a perfectly good way to translate it. But that last phrase, ergu agathu, is literally good works. And if you take a look at the handout where I've sort of popped in the Greek for the next few verses, you'll see that the Greek word ergon is the noun Ergazomai is the verb, recurs in just about every verse. It gets a little blurred and obscured in translation, and especially, I think, in an unhelpful translation like we have here in 2.7, but Paul talks about, in every verse, the essential role of doing good works. So God will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience in good works Seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, there again is obedience. Those that are not carrying out the obediencia fidei, the obedience of faith, but are rather not obeying the truth, but rather obeying wickedness. For those who do not obey the truth but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And there the word that's translated does. I gave to you kata ergazomenu. Uh, literally those who work evil. Kata there is kind of an intensifier. To the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And there's our word for working again. Ergazomeno. Everyone who is working the good the Jew first, and also the Greek. Thus Paul's position is, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, what does God want for you? Yes, faith. But how is he going to judge you? He will render to every man according to his works. To those who are working patiently, persistently, perseveringly, seeking for eternal life, they will find a favor before God on the day of judgment. But for those whose works are evil, who are obeying wickedness and not the truth, there will be wrath on the day of judgment. And so in that text, you have four or five mentions here of the importance of works for being judged rightly. Remember we talked about the difference between justification and salvation. Being saved is ultimately being saved from the mighty judgment seat of God. Justification is a state that we can enter into right now, but we enter into it in the hopes of when judgment day comes, when either we end or the world ends, whichever comes first, we will be ultimately judged to be in the friendship of God and saved from the wrath of hellfire. And so in this section of Romans, we see the importance of our behavior, of working. And the very term that we use as Catholics to this day, good works, appears to us in this passage as well. A little bit further on, in Romans 6, Paul describes how we are to use the human nature that God has given us. If you flip over to Romans 6.11, I pulled out just a couple of quotes on your handout since the passage was a little long. But if you look at Romans 6.11, Paul writes, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. 
Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become the slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what return then did you get from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a dense and suggestive passage, and I want to go through several details of it just to make sure that we don't miss some of the things that Paul is telling us. But the overall big picture I summarized for you is that grace affords us a new life. This is perhaps the better known way that John describes grace as a new life. You can think of our Lord, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and uh, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and abide in me. And John has these images of life which are abundant in his description of the life of grace. But Paul uses them too. And here, grace gives us a new life, and that new life gives us a freedom, a freedom from the tyranny of sin. Now, in the modern picture of freedom, freedom's getting up in the morning and having a lot of choices. 800 brands of cereal, and do I do this or do I do that? Uh, But the more classical notion of freedom is, yes, freedom from limitation, right? We're not bounded by something, and therefore we don't have any options because we're constrained. But it's freedom for, as well. It's freedom for doing something. And so, too, we were once slaves to sin, and uh, Paul says, you know, he corrects himself for his sort of funny way of speaking. Uh, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> That's to say, you didn't really have much of a choice. Because when you were sunk in the, uh, the mire that you were in, was a, the Roman community was mixed. They were Gentile and Jewish. And Paul talked about the condition of the Gentiles without revelation. It's somewhat sad in Romans 1. Well, when you were living that life... Eh, <laughs> In an ironic way, he's being a little tongue-in-cheek. You, know, you were free with regard to righteousness. You didn't really have anything to do with that. But now that God has set you free from the tyranny of sin, you have choices. You have things that you must do. And you are able now to do things that you previously were not able to do because of the life of grace in you. And what should one do? One should make oneself an instrument, as Paul says, of righteousness. What is an instrument but something that does something, something that acts, something that brings about a certain kind of behavior or end or result? And then he goes on to describe that. Instruments of righteousness for sanctification. And literally there in the Greek, it is 
Ice is the pronoun. Uh, unto is how it's usually rendered in slightly older English. You are made by grace instruments of righteousness unto sanctification, unto holiness. The idea is that God has given you a new power so that now you have the ability to do something, an instrument not formerly of wickedness, but an instrument that will bring about things that are holy. That's another way of describing what Paul has said in Romans 2 as good works, doing things which have a genuinely holy character because of what grace is doing in you. And what is the end of that? End is a somewhat unusual term that's being rendered here, but the Greek word telos uh, is a broader word in Greek. It can mean the end or the purpose or the goal. Uh, that's sort of the, the ultimate motive whereby one does something is it's telos. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar, maybe the Institute does metaphysics, I don't know, with the classic four causes, the material cause, efficient cause, formal cause, and final cause. So the house might be made of wood, the efficient cause is the carpenters and the team that constructs it, the formal cause is the design uh, that the architect has, and the final cause, of course, is shelter. It's the ultimate reason whereby all these things are brought together and united to one end. So that word that's translated here as end can be translated as goal or purpose, telos in Greek. And so God has set us free from the tyranny of sin to have a new power, to be instruments unto sanctification for the purpose of eternal life. And so in that passage, I think you have all the elements of our usual Catholic understanding of the process of justification. God comes first by his own sovereign initiative, out of love, and gives us grace that enlightens our mind and allows us to make choices, to turn from a life of sin in repentance. And then further assisted by God's grace, we can go on with the help of God's grace to do things which are genuinely good, good works as we usually call them. And the purpose of these good works is ultimately so that as he said in Romans 2, on the day of judgment, we might be found in favor with God rather than deserving of his wrath. I said last time that I read this thing through in Greek just to, just to kind of brush up because I didn't want to be sloppy. And I was amazed at how thorny sometimes the translational issues are here. Uh, the KJV actually does a better job at this than the RSV where it, uh, it does say literally... Romans 6.22, in the RSV it says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become the slaves of God. The return that you get is sanctification and its end eternal life. That's the RSV. KGV is more literal there, and it actually conveys the sense that will immediately remind you of the gospel. Instead it says, uh, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you have is unto sanctification, the end of which is eternal life. Uh, that's a common Jewish metaphor. It still persists in English. We sometimes say the fruits of our labor, yes, uh, as a way of describing the outcome or the results. But I think it's particularly helpful if it's still translated according to that old-fashioned way of speaking because what, of course, does this remind you of? Christ's own teaching about fruits in the gospel. So when Paul says in Romans 6.22, the fruit you have is unto sanctification, the end or the goal of which is eternal life. Uh, compare, I gave you two passages from the gospel, one from John the Baptist who first preached it in preparation and then another from our Lord who preached it again just a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel. 
Matthew 3. It's on the handout, so you don't have to flip. Deacon stepped out of the room for a second. He won't be uh, <laughs> upset that I didn't have you. Oh, he's back in. Uh, <laughs> so you can turn in your Bible to the first gospel. <laughs> or if you get a little lost, you can look in the handout. But if you can't find Matthew, you're in really sore shape because it's at the very head of the New Testament. But John the Baptist preaches. He's there baptizing in the wilderness by the River Jordan. And then Matthew tells us, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, So for John the Baptist there, what is the essential criteria for whether or not the tree is cut down and thrown into the fire? The bearing of the fruit. And in fact, the benefit of not being subject to my handout is that if you read a little bit further, um, John speaking of Christ, if you turn uh, to the very next verse, 311, he speaks of the coming of the Christ. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, appropriate, uh, since we're at Pentecost, this is uh, setting us up for Acts 2 at the very beginning of the preaching of the gospel. So we're, we're prepped for Pentecost right there in Matthew 3. But look how he describes the coming of the Lord Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's another judgment image. Whether you're kernel or husk, or whether you are bad fruit or good fruit, uh, that is the deciding criteria for how you will fare on the day of judgment. Now our Lord intensifies this, and I think there's an even better proof text for our Catholic position in Matthew 7. So flip a few chapters later when Jesus comes and begins to preach in the same manner as John the Baptist had prepared. Matthew 7:15. Jesus says, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles?" So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. So far the same. But now we continue. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so there, in case there was any doubt about what the bearing of fruit might mean, our Lord goes further. And I think it's very interesting when we have to uh, apologetically explain, defend our Catholic understanding of what justification means, is that here we have a position where someone even professes Christ as Lord on their lips. And that is not enough. 
unless they do the will. That's what you know, we see that in John as well. If you want to have a reading that makes all of the apostles in concert, as opposed to trying to play one against the other, what is so often the theme of John's writing in his gospels or in his letters? If you love me, keep my commandments. What does Jesus charge them in the Great Commission? Go therefore and baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so to hear in Christ's first preaching about the general judgment, the bad tree bears bad fruit, and it's cut down and thrown into the fire. The good tree bears good fruit, and even those who call upon him as Lord, if they do not do the will of my Father who is in heaven, they are not going to be saved. And that's precisely the position of Paul here in Romans. I think if we believe in the inspired character of the entire New Testament, we have to read all of the books in concert with one another. Truth cannot contradict truth. And even to some modern critics that might not buy that as an exegetical principle, you can even make a case solely from within Paul. That's half of what I've been trying to do, is by carefully examining Paul's language, by disentangling it from traditional Lutheran misinterpretation, by seeing his emphasis on things like the importance of works and what works of the law means and what it does not mean, you can see in Paul that faith, yes, is essential, but that faith should not be narrowly construed to be merely intellectual assent or even profession on the lips, but it must essentially involve doing good works. Or, this is why Trent found this to be the epitome of Paul's teaching, by faith working through love. I gave you uh, the one-liner from 1 Corinthians that also speaks just as tellingly to the essential uh, nature of doing good works for the sake of the love of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, this is his famous hymn on love. You all know it from weddings, uh, where the refrain you know, is, if I have love, I am nothing. But, but in 13.2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So what does that mean? Again, for the position that it is faith understood simply as intellectual possession of divine revelation, intellectual adherence to certain revealed truths, if Paul can say... That if I have all of that, and beyond that, I have not only just the retention of these things, but the profound comprehension. I understand all mysteries, and I'm filled with all knowledge, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. For Paul, the faith that saves is what I've called living faith. And trying to compress it down into the shortest possible formulation, the last thing I put on the page is saving faith works. In all of these passages... Faith alone, understood in the Lutheran sense as intellectual assent, cannot save. It must be what St. James calls living faith as opposed to dead faith, when he says faith without works is dead. What St. Paul calls faith working through love in Galatians 5.6, or what Paul also calls the life of faith in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's clear then that for Paul to be consistent with Paul, with the rest of the New Testament, 
the faith that saves cannot be merely intellectual adherence. It includes this, but it's more. Saving faith works. And uh, Jimmy, thank you, uh, last time said, you did all this vocab work on the first day, you should do something that similarly schematizes the meanings of faith. So I did. Uh, faith is a many splendored thing. And I think part of interpreting Paul correctly, and indeed part of talking about your Catholic faith with Protestants, is to have an awareness of the breadth of this term, faith. And so on the next page, I put together uh, some of the senses of faith in Paul, and I gave you some texts where the word faith is used in that manner, both from Romans and from Galatians. So I enumerated five there. Maybe there's more, but I thought these five were the primary ones. And uh, I wanted you to see how they all sort of culminate in the fifth and final sense, which is how Paul typically uses faith in its fullest sense, the faith that justifies. So faith on level A can mean something akin to our English trust. Originally in Hebrew, the term is often translated steadfastness. And I think this is kind of interesting for Paul because, of course, you know, we stand on the other side of the dividing line between the Testaments. We have the fullness of Christ's revelation. Christ said to his disciples, you know, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear, because many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it, and long to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We have a certain fullness of the mystery hidden for ages in God revealed to us that makes it more natural for us to think of faith in terms of adhering to things, propositions, truths revealed to us. But in the Old Testament, perhaps the more dominant character of faith early on is trust, because God is in the process of revealing what he is doing through Israel. And so uh, sometimes the emphasis is more on orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Uh, sometimes the emphasis is more on trusting God and you will understand as things unfold. But there is a real sense of faith as trust. We see this in English. I tried to give you some everyday English examples. We say to someone, I have faith in you. Well, what does that mean? It means I trust you. I'm willing to put my stock to put important decisions into practice based on how I believe you are. Right? That usually is a, a statement about belief in someone, as we say in English. Uh, we can also mean faith in sense B, as in the act of belief, having faith. And so when we say that we have faith, that means that we assent to certain things that are told to us. That's sort of the subjective side. Faith is an action, intellectual adherence. But faith can also mean what we believe, as in the phrase, the Catholic faith. There we tend to mean the revealed truths themselves in contrast to our act of believing them. And so Paul talks about this somewhat more scarcely, uh, but he's, he does talk about the word of faith which we preach. And he talks about that as passing on what Christ himself has preached. Then there's also the sense of faith that I've given you as item D, what I've called the light of faith. This is the grace whereby we are able to see what God has revealed as true. You know this, yeah, you know this in the American South, especially from the hymn Amazing Grace, was blind but now I see. Uh, sometimes people call that the grace of first faith, 
where God illuminates the mind so that we see the gospel, as Paul says, not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God. That's another sense of faith. That's sort of the motive of our believing, is this grace that comes to us that sometimes we call faith, or to give it a little distinction, I've called it the light of faith. And then lastly, sense E, what I've called the life of faith. This is all that we do when we act in accordance with what we believe. Uh, we still have this sense in English when we say he's a faithful Catholic. Right? That doesn't mean simply that he knows his catechism and can recite numbers of paragraphs to you, but it typically means something like, yeah, he goes to church and he doesn't live a life riddled with scandal. When we say someone is faithful to his wedding vows, uh, you probably wouldn't get away with saying, I do recall that I made a certain promise to you. <laughs> Unless you actually obey, <laughs> and in your individual actions, carry out fidelity. And when you're faithful to your marriage vows, that means you're living them out. You're loving your wife, and you're eschewing all those things that would be contrary to love of your wife. And so uh, that's the bigger sense of faith. And notice that it encompasses all the previous things. When God reveals the gospel to us, it's a supernatural truth. It's not something we can know by natural reason. The classic Thomistic definition of faith is when the intellect, moved by the will, with the assistance of grace, believes in something that God has revealed by the authority of God who reveals it. We have faith in one another in a loose sense. I have faith in my GPS. It brings me in some weird back way that ends up in a road that says dead end, but then there's a little gate and I come in the back. And I actually lost faith in the GPS at that moment, but boop, there it was, there's St. Michael's. And you know, I have a certain trust uh, in Garmin because they've put a lot of money into making this product, and I have perhaps more faith in people's desire for money than I do in the cartographical enterprise in general, but when we have uh, faith in God, we believe what he's told us because he can neither deceive nor be deceived, as the classical formulation goes. So yeah, we first have to have trust in him as our creator and indeed uh, as he's showing himself to us to be our redeemer. Then we also have to adhere to these truths because they're not natural to our mind. It's not like an object of physical science. The truth that Christ came was God in the flesh, died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and now calls us to join him in eternal life. And so there is a certain mental adherence that requires the will to move the mind to assent to those things. It's an act that we do. Faith is, of course, an object to believe because we don't believe. This is where it's going in the modern period. Uh, like the DC bumper stickers or something like celebrate, discover, believe, or something like, you know, it's the direct objectlessness of modern life. You just sort of do these things without any content. Faith obviously involves a certain object of belief, and we can't do it without the assistance of faith, the light of faith. And all of that is packaged up into what I've called the life of faith. Yes, we trust God. Yes, because of that, we decide that we are going to adhere to things that he has revealed to us. And it's not just any old thing, but it's the full truth of the gospel. If you want another treasure from Galatians, look at Galatians 1, where Paul says, if any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached, let him be anathema. Because what Paul is doing is not his own brainchild, but simply passing on the teaching of Christ. So there's an objective content there. And it can only be grasped with the assistance of grace. 
And once all that's been done, then we are in a position where we can live that faith out. And what does that mean for Paul? That means keeping the commandments of the gospel, the obedience of faith. Uh, So for those to whom the gospel has come, this would include what we sort of think is the entirety of the Christian life. And you can find that in Paul, and you can find that in Paul even in Romans. It means the life of prayer. Romans 8, I gave you just some brief citations there where Paul talks to us about the importance of prayer. And since we're in the Feast of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit helps us to pray as we ought. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so there's God working in us through the life of prayer. What is the life of faith also involved for Paul? Baptism. In fact, it's so tied up in his understanding of the normal course of faith that sometimes he just functionally equates them. I gave you two instances there. Romans 6.3, it's a little bit longer meditation. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so this newness of life that Paul was previously discussing in terms of grace and of faith, he now discusses in terms of baptism. Or so too in Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, uh, so there you can see it's interesting. Uh, Paul equates them. For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You can see there that for Paul, faith in that verse means baptism. Kind of like reflected in the church's older formula for the baptism of infants. When the parents bring the child to the baptismal font, the priest says, what do you want for your child? The parents would respond, faith. And then the child would be given baptism. Because for Paul... As we see reflected even in the church's practice there, the life of faith means, in part, the desire for baptism. Why? Because Christ taught it. Unless a man be reborn of water and the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Go therefore and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So what does it mean to have faith for Paul? It clearly means things like sacrament. And then also, um, good works, as I stressed, with the obedience of faith and with Romans 2. So when you talk about faith for Paul, we can say, truly, as Catholics, we are justified by faith. And you might get scrupulous and worry that if you don't add works, you're going to be somehow leaving the door open for error. And now in a post-Tridentine world, we typically say that. Faith and works, faith and works, faith and works. But for Paul, the essential need to do good works so much uh, in his mind that he's content just with the sense of faith in its fullest, broadest, most vigorous usage in sense E. Be faithful means for Paul not just I remember all the things and I trust in what God has revealed, but I'm carrying them out. 
And so that's the broader sense of Paul, and I think it's important not to let that be whittled down. Because if you look at how Paul describes it, uh, it's there in Romans, it's there in Galatians, it's certainly there uh, if you want to trace it out into Corinthians and in Hebrews. Now, with that said, sometimes people will take up texts from Romans 3 and 4 and use that against a Catholic understanding of what we've just been talking about. Uh, Romans 3.28 is the Lutheran verse that Luther modified to faith alone. Paul writes, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now again, a text without a context is no text at all. See, I remember all these jingles. Uh, The context of this discussion, just zoom out a couple of verses, and you can see that just like in Galatians, works of the law here means what? Works of the law of Moses. Back to the Judaizing controversy. Done without faith, these do not save. For Paul, if you're a Jew, and you do the works of the law of Moses without faith, that does not save. If you do the works of the law of Moses with faith, that might save. And if you're a Gentile, and you don't have the law of Moses, if you live without faith, you're not saved. If you live with faith, you can be saved. So ultimately, it's not whether you do the works of the law of Moses, it's whether you have the faith. And so too he argues here. Uh, first, he stresses the universal phenomenon of sinfulness. Romans 3.9, all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as we said just a few moments ago. Then he talks about how the law of Moses serves to convict men of their sinfulness. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What we talked about in connections with Galatians 3.22 a few moments ago. Then 3.27, Paul's boasting. He has this curious phrase leading up to the chief verse 328 here. He says, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith, and this uncircumcised through the ground of their faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what's he doing there? You can see with the last couple of verses that his emphasis is again on the salvation of Jew and Gentile through faith alike, and not through the works of the law of Moses. But what's the boasting It's weird because there's no immediate previous reference to the boasting. You have to kind of get a broader sense of Paul and how he writes. But I gave you some citations on the handout that when Paul boasts in this tongue-in-cheek way, he boasts about his former life in Judaism. I gave you some passages from Philippians and from 2 Corinthians and from Galatians where he used to, in battling with the Judaizers, sometimes they accused him of being a laxist, it seems. Oh, that Paul... He doesn't want you to keep the law of Moses because he likes to pack congregations by pitching you a low bar of behavior and getting away with that uh, difficult business of circumcision. You know, that doesn't really please people. So he's just selling you an easy bill of goods. We, the Judaizers, are the rigorists. And so you should come and listen to us and be obedient to the law of Moses and keep all these additional precepts because we know how to be hardcore in our religiosity. And Paul says, oh, really? (laughs) Let me boast of my former life in Judaism. And several times he likes to talk about, as a Pharisee, how rigorously he kept 
all the jot and tittle of the law down to his smallest details. That's Paul's boasting of his former life in Judaism. And so what's he saying there? First, the universal reality of human sinfulness. Second, the role of the law in driving home to everyone their need for repentance. And then he says, what then becomes of our boasting, our bragging about how good we are because we observe the law of Moses? It is excluded. That is to say, it's not really something that we can talk about with respect to our salvation. We have to put that aside. Why is it excluded? On the principle of works. Now, what's works there? This is the few times that Paul speaks very short form. He means the works of the law of Moses. No, but on the principle of faith. So, grasping the essential need to have faith in order to be saved is what makes Paul able to say, no matter how good of a keeper of the law of Moses you may have been, all of that has to be put aside. Because what is essential is whether or not one did that with faith. If one did that with faith, it may be to your merit on the day of salvation. But if one was doing it without any sense of its connectedness to Christ, either as God would reveal him if you were waiting for the promised Messiah, or as God has revealed him to those of you that have received the gospel. Uh, It's the having of faith in Christ and what Christ has done that is essential. So when Paul talks about excluding this boasting, the works he refers to are not anything a man happens to do, whether with grace or without, but specifically the works of the law of Moses, and again in the context of the Judaizing dispute. So to Romans 4, this is another passage that seems to be frequently used. Because again, Paul speaks of work here, and you know, that's his shortest formulation. Works of the law of Moses is a mouthful. Works of the law is a little bit less of a mouthful, and works is usually his quickest way of saying it when he refers to the same thing. Romans 4, 5, And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Quote, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Now this is perhaps a sort of perfect verse for Lutherans because it seems to say, and to the one who does not work, if you interpret it the wrong way, That is to say, the one who does nothing, let's just put aside what he does, but trusts, faith is intellectual assent and adherence, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And then he backs it up, so David also pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Well, there's even the dung heap covered in snow, isn't it? But, again, if you get a one-liner from the Old Testament, go back, look at the context. Psalm 32, what is it? Penitential psalm. What's David talking about? Just like maybe the more well-known penitential psalm, do you know Psalm 51, the Miserere? David had all kinds of means at his disposal. And for the king, even sometimes specific offerings were prescribed for sin. He could bring those a thousand times over. And so in Psalm 32, what's the thrust of Psalm 32? Now you've got to go dig. Look at the Psalter. It depends on your Bible edition where it is. Look at Psalm 32. 
He just gives you the first line. He presumes you know the rest of the song. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I declared not my sin, my body wasted away, though my groaning was all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Let therefore everyone who is godly offer a prayer to thee. And so what's the thrust of that? Just like in the Miserere, in Psalm 51, where David says, Sacrifice and burnt offering you would have not desired. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken and contrite heart. Without repentance without grace entering into the heart and turning it and converting it and one coming in humility and saying, God, I need your grace and your forgiveness. All of the things that the law specified for a sin offering would have been in vain. So rather than saying, blessed is the man who doesn't do anything, blessed is the man who simply trusts in God regardless of his behavior and God imputes him a state of righteousness, what is Paul talking about when he quotes David? the works of the law of Moses, and particularly the ceremonial works that were done in in repentance for sin. So to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David was justified through his profound repentance even before he gave bullocks at the altar, so too the Gentiles, apart from works of the law, by their contrition, by God moving their hearts by grace, can be justified. And so again, if you get the context, it doesn't indicate this Lutheran notion of merely intellectual assent and trust in God saves me now and once saved, always saved, and I am simply reckoned as a non-sinner even though in my behavior I'm still being just as bad as I was. Rather, it's a statement about how grace and faith are essential and primary and without those, anything else that follows is not doing anything with respect to our salvation. And as Catholics, we can fully agree on that. Since I'm probably a good five minutes over time by now, I left you the lengthiest part of the handout on what I call the Calvinist Field Day passage, uh, Romans 7, 19 through 25, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So then, I have myself served the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Oh my, for, uh, is that not a proof text for, for simul justus et peccator? Luther's statement that I am I'm simultaneously a just man and a sinner? Doesn't that seem to be like the perfect text for total depravity? Or I, I dug up another uh, quote from Luther, esto peccator. Be a sinner. Peccata forte, sed fortius fide. Sin mightily, but believe more mightily. Um, <laughs> and that's the essence. That's, that's to what you logically reduce the matter when you bracket good works as the expression of lived faith. That it would not matter if you say that simply the intellectual trust and adherence to the gospel is what's essential to salvation. If you believe that, then that position follows quite naturally. But 
What's Romans 7 talking about? As Catholics, we have a nice term. We've got a lot of technical terms. Paul speaks here of what we sometimes call concupiscence. The law of sin he speaks about is that perennial tendency we find because of original sin and our history of personal sin to want to do things that we know we should not do. In itself, that is not sinful. It's temptation for sure, but it is a constant undertow that if we're not vigilant, it will lead us back into sin. And sometimes, despite our best intentions, uh, we find ourselves revisiting those habitual and well-worn sins that we might struggle mentally to avoid very frequently. This is Paul plumbing for the first time the depths of consciousness in, I think, a new way that's become you know, part of the Christian understanding of psychology is that we have this phenomenon of the struggle within ourselves, and part of that is what Paul is describing here. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to just leave you with as proof text is that Paul does not hold the Calvinist position of man's total depravity. Luther said that the will was an ass to be ridden either by God or the devil. Notice the importance of the genuine operation of our free will in the following three passages, and then I'll stop. 1 Corinthians 10, a help for all of you that are struggling with habitual sin. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, so you can't take Romans 7 as the powerlessness of the human will in light of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Or the passage we read a few moments ago about with grace being instruments of righteousness unto sanctification for the goal of eternal life. Or lastly, Galatians 5. How could, if our wills were impotent and all we did in the flesh was sin, Paul write his conclusion to the letter to the Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are plain, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, drunkenness, dissension, party spirit, envy, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so there, you can see with God's grace, we have the capacity to do good works. And I think that's a fitting Pentecost passage to conclude with the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit in allowing us to persevere in good works unto sanctification. So, uh, I hope that was useful as a review of how Romans is not a softball for Lutherans to hit back at us in the apologetical ballpark. Um, I'm sorry for going a little bit long, but I wanted to touch some of those passages that are often used against a Catholic reading of Romans. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor.
Thank you for another excellent presentation. I always love Professor Janisowski's talks, mostly because we get to put them on the internet. And uh, <laughs> you want to talk about playing softball or hardball, I think we're playing hardball, and they're there <laughs> for anyone who wants to take a look. But I want to turn you to Romans chapter 4 in conclusion, because a final note on Pentecost. As you can tell, it's one of my favorite festivals. So turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. And Professor Eric Janislawski was talking about this point and talking about its reference to Psalms, to the book of Psalms. And I want you to look down to the footnote of your Bible for Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Do you see it there? What does it say? Psalm 32. Thank you very much, those who put your little Bible together there. What do I want you to do with that? Two things. The first is about my point I made earlier. Go home and call somebody you know who's either not Catholic or who hasn't been going to church lately. And invite them to church and brunch afterwards. And if you've got to take them out to a restaurant, fantastic. Because you'll have an opportunity to talk to them about the Feast of Pentecost and what it means to you to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's number one. You want to make a difference? Don't sit in your chairs here and drink wine and eat cheese. Go do something. You go home and you say, Yes, Lord, my hands are your hands. And I'm willing to pick up this phone right now and actually do something. Call somebody tonight. Tonight, you have a chance, an opportunity that the Lord gives you. That's number one. And number two is to sit down with your Bible tonight and look up that psalm, Psalm 32, and go back and read it. And if you didn't get anything out of it, that's okay. And go to church tomorrow, because I guarantee you, you will be a hundred steps in front of anyone else in that church. And when the text is proclaimed and you pray to the gift of the Holy Spirit, he will work through you. And you will begin to understand the text. Only if we're willing to do it. So be willing to do it. And trust me, the grace which God will give you will give you a happiness in your life which you knew did not exist. And this brings me to my last point, and I'm sorry to be going on long tonight, but that is that my dad is here with me tonight, sitting back there. Wave your hand. Stand up, Dad. There you go. That man never once gave up on me. And trust me, there was much to give up on. But he didn't give up. He always told me the truth. And when I came to that point when I had nowhere else to turn, I turned back to that which he had given me, and that was the faith. And that's going to be true for those that you're in contact with. They'll turn to you if you're faithful, and if you're there for them. Be there for them. And a joy which you didn't know existed, a joy which I didn't know existed. Trust me, I didn't know it existed. But when I found it, it was the greatest joy that I would leave California and my dad's home. I would drive to Virginia and I would be here for you. It will be there also for you if you're willing to say, yes, Lord. So go home tonight. You pray. Yes, Lord. You read these texts. You call your friends and make this the first Pentecost of your life.